Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Logan. I am the assistant director here at our old Brooklyn campus. And uh, this morning I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. Uh, but before we dive into the word, let's dive into some prayer. Lord, you are God Almighty. You are capable of doing everything that you desire. By your strength, you created all things, and by the word of your power, you also sustain all things. Yet the depth of your power is seen most clearly in how you give of yourself to us. I pray that we would recognize the way you sustain our souls when we come to you, and I pray that our hearts would be inclined to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of going to a conference uh, with my school, and it was in downtown Pittsburgh. Uh, it's called the Jubilee Conference. If you've heard of it, you know it. If you haven't heard of it, I don't blame you. I hadn't heard of it before either. The main idea behind it was how to apply the Christian faith, your faith, in everyday ideas. So they had business people come and give ideas about how to share faith, uh, how to use their faith in their business. They had uh, people who were pastors and creative artists come and share different ideas. And one of the breakout sessions that I decided uh, I'd go to, because it sounded very interesting, uh, was titled Sabbath or Die. But seriously, though. Uh, the gentleman who ran it, this breakout session was uh, Justin McRoberts. Never heard of him before, but he's a creative person who uh, writes songs, writes books, uh, seemed very influential. And he starts off his talk about how he came to understand uh, what we would understand uh, the Sabbath or rest, specifically taking a designated time out of the week to do absolutely nothing. He said he didn't come to it from a place of getting it right, but he came from a place of absolutely needing to pause. And he said this, which really stuck with me. Being tired is not the sign of being an adult. Being tired is the sign that you have an issue with the rhythms in your life, and that's it. Unfortunately, I've used that uh, phrase within the past couple of weeks, so I stand here not because I've gotten it right, uh, but because I need to work on it. And as he continued his talk, he said, we never reach our full potential because we are spread so thin. Soul burnout happens when we don't have rhythms of regular rest. We go and we go and we go and we go. And our culture rewards that kind of behavior. The person who's most successful isn't the person who puts in 40 hours a week, but 80 hours a week. The entrepreneur has almost no life outside of getting the business going, making the right connections, selling the product, getting things started. And so in our mindset, we're missing something when we are at rest. But McRoberts says uh, something very important about rest. This God-given idea of rest reminds you and I that we are not machines. We are not defined by our productivity. We are beloved children of God. 
sometimes we can use our productivity to find a sense of significance and worth in our lives. And McRoberts argued, when we rest, we are giving ourselves over to God for that moment to say, I trust you with this thing that is precious to me. I rely on you. And it's not just McRoberts who says that rest is important. If you know anything about exercise, I don't know that much. I, uh, some of my siblings are very into it. Um, rest days are extremely important. When you exercise, you're literally tearing little pieces of your muscle, and when you continually exercise, continually exercise, and drive yourself, that leads to the probability of overworking yourself and injuring yourself. When you give your body rest days, it gives moments for your body to heal. And what we've been studying, what Jovan started last week and what we're going to finish today, is this idea that rest is necessary for our souls to be healthy, for us to be able to live into the full potential God created us for. And what Christ offers isn't just a rest for our bodies. He offers rest for that inner person, our souls, that we so desperately need. Matthew records this saying of Jesus. He says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Father let me say that again. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And in this most beautiful phrase that Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Christ says we begin to experience soul rest by knowing God. I'm working my way through a uh, book by a theologian named Thomas Odin, and I was very intrigued when he laid out this idea uh, that when you look at older generations of people who talked about God, who wrote about God, and who also defended uh, the faith that uh, we read about in Scripture, Odin says people didn't start by trying to prove the existence of God. The very first thing they did was they tried to explain what God is like as you can find him in the Bible. Because their idea was, it doesn't matter if some kind of God exists out there or not. It matters if the kind of God exists who is incomparably good and powerful, and he is a caring source and end of all things. It matters if this God truly meets us in the person of Jesus Christ and truly is as revealed in Scripture. If that kind of God could not exist, it doesn't matter if he exists or not. 
And Christ starts this statement in this very same way. He says, I want to show you the heart of God. And in order to do so, I want to show you something about the relationship that the Son has with the Father. He reveals the nature of God in order to help us know that God does, in fact, give us rest. Now, when we look on the surface, Jesus' language is highly controversial. It was controversial back then, and it's controversial today. First of all, Jesus says, God does not reveal himself to the wise and understanding, but to little children. God passes over those who have a high status and a high intellect and high all the accolades, accolade, all the achievements, whatever that word is, all the achievements you could ask for, and chooses instead to reveal himself to those who we think would least deserve it. Both today and back then, that's countercultural. Today, we think uh, about doctors. In order to understand the language of doctors, you have to be a doctor. If you've been to the doctor's office and they've said jargon that you have no idea what they're saying, odds are you're like me, you're not a doctor. And you have to say, can you please uh, bring that down to my level a little bit? Like, just, just a little bit. Okay. Lawyers understand the language of the law. I can understand a little bit of it, but it sounds old-fashioned and I don't understand it. Can you just tell me a little bit of what I need to do and what I can't do? Please and thank you. Okay. Langu lawyers are needed to understand the language of the law. And don't get me started on computer programmers, because all it is are a bunch of random letters, random numbers, and incorrect punctuation marks, and a bunch of blank spaces. And somehow, it all makes sense to them. I don't understand it. I did coding once, and it was like that much coding, which is nothing. Okay. It takes somebody embedded in the language to understand that language. And if we take that paradigm and apply it to God, the language of God, understanding the language of Christ, what we would expect is that the people who had all the understanding of Scripture, all the understanding of God, all this and all that, would be the people most ready not only to understand, but accept God. But God changes the way that works. He says you can't take it for granted that you understand and know me. In fact, what Jesus says is, I reveal the Father to whom I will. When we understand something about the character of God, when something about the character of God affects our souls, it's not because we had the right intellect, we had the right ideas, we had, it's because God graciously shares that with God graciously allows us to be affected by that idea. We only know God because God reveals him. And this is the second idea that is extremely controversial. Listen to what Jesus says. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you have a long-standing uh, friendship with somebody, or uh, maybe you've been married for a while, 
you will be able to identify with this. If you've known somebody for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you begin to know something of what that person's like more deeply than somebody who just meets that person. Odds are, if you've been here as long as I have, a couple of years, you know me a little bit better than somebody who's new. But you're not going to know me as well as my family who's had to deal with me for 25 years. As we know somebody, as we get to experience life with them, we get to know who they are. We know what kind of clothing they would wear. We know what their reaction would be to uh, what somebody says. We know uh, what their preference for food is. And we also begin to know what they're like, whether they're even-tempered, passionate, boisterous, quiet, outgoing, introverted, whatever the case might be. As we get to know somebody, we have the capability of talking about them. And what Jesus is saying here, if we take that a little further, the Son existed before the beginning with the Father. And for all time as we understand it, the Son and the Father have known each other. They've experienced each other. They know exactly what they are like. And if indeed the Father has given the Son the ability and the authority to reveal the Father, when we look to Christ, we get to look directly at God. Christ reveals the very heart of God. And in fact, you can read throughout uh, the witness accounts, uh, Matthew several times says, uh, records when the Father said, this is my beloved Son with whom I, I am well pleased. Listen to him. You can read John's account and how uh, the Father and the Son are one. They have the same kind of will. They have the same desire. They are so in tune with each other, they can represent each other well. And so when we look to the Son, when we look to Jesus, we see the very heart of God. All right. This is why this is a big deal. If you go on the History Channel today, or you listen to another religion talk about uh, Christ, you will hear something very different. The History Channel is going to caricature Christ as a good moral teacher who got caught up in a political coup and got himself killed, and somewhere his body's buried, and you could find him if you looked really hard. I listened to a podcast uh, this past week by somebody who was of the... Uh, I believe it was the Baha'i religion. I'd never heard of it before. Uh, but they say that all religions ultimately point to God. Uh, first it was through Moses, then it was through Christ, then it was through Muhammad, then it was through so on and so forth. And so for that person, Christ was just another moral person pointing the way to God. If what Christ says is true, and if the Father does truly authenticate Christ in this way, only the Son can point the way to Christ. You will not get to the heart of God by looking to another religion. You will not get to the heart of God by working through different thoughts. You will not get to the heart of God through your own life experiences. You only get to the heart of of God by looking to the Son. And in this passage, 
Christ reveals three qualities about God and three invitations from God. Three qualities of God, three character traits of God, and gives three invitations. The first idea that he gives, the first uh, character trait that he gives is that God is gentle and lowly in heart. We'll get to that in a moment because uh, it ties in with something else. But God, uh, Christ says something about the good will of God. As soon as he says, uh, you've hidden these things from the wise and shown them to the little children, he said, for such was your good will. Understanding that the will of God is good is central to being able to trust God. John Calvin was a theologian from the uh, 16th century, and he had this idea uh, that he called piety. He said, if you're going to trust God, if you're going to serve him, if you're going to give yourself truly to him, first and foremost, you have to trust in the goodness of God. You have to trust that everything good in your life comes from God. Because until we recognize that everything good in our lives comes from God, that he is the author of every good, that he nourishes us by his fatherly care, and that we don't need to seek anything beyond him, we never give ourselves truly to him because we will always be looking for something else outside of God. If God is not able to give us exactly what we need, then we will always be waiting for something else to fill that need. So Christ says, such was your good will. God is able to give himself to people we least expect because it doesn't depend on us getting it right. It depends on his good will to share these ideas about himself with us. So first and foremost, Christ reveals we have to understand the good will of God. God's will is good towards us. Once we understand this idea, we can start moving into, we can begin to start moving into uh, the invitations Christ gives us. We begin to experience soulness by coming to Christ. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Labor is this idea of actively working for something. Heavy laden is this idea that some things happen to us that are outside of our control. You see, in life, uh, for some of us, we channel, when we distrust the goodness of God, the goodwill of God, we seek to fill that gap by working for something. Sometimes it comes through uh, our own jobs or careers. We work ourselves into a place where we feel significant. We work ourselves until we feel like we have value and worth because of what we do, what we can produce in our lives. And for others of us, uh, we experience the weight of things that happen to us. We experience the weight of 
we experience the weight of guilt. We experience the weight of expectations people put on us. And we think if we could just get those right, we would be all right. But the reality is, whether you are actively trying to work on it, or whether you are experiencing that because it's outside of your control, our control, we always come to a place where we run out of steam. We run out of our ability to deal with the reality that life brings us. And it's in those moments that Christ meets us and says, come to me if you feel this weight, and I will give you Until we can learn to trust Christ for that rest, until we can learn that he delights in giving us that rest, we will always rely on our self-worth, our value coming from what we do or what we experience. Remember what uh, Mick Roberts said at the beginning from that conference. Um, culture tries to make us machines that have value based off of what we produce. Christ says, I value you based off of the person I created you to be. Not what you can do for me, but what I've done for you. As we learn to live into that, as we learn to live, lean into that, we begin to sense the weight lifting from us. We no longer have to work to earn approval we get to work from a sense of approval. And this leads us to the second invitation of Christ. We experience soul rest by taking on Christ's yoke. This second invitation recalibrates our purpose in life. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, uh, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We don't use the image of a yoke. I, we're not an agricultural uh, culture that relies on farm animals. Okay. In those times, in order to grow crops, plow your fields, you'd have to have two oxes standing side by side, and you would put a wooden yoke, a wooden bar that tied them together essentially on them, and you would attach the plowing equipment to that. So as they walked forward, they would take the plow with them. Now, if you think about a yoke, that's hard labor. All right, that required the animals to put in some amount of effort. But what Jesus says is absolutely incredible. He doesn't say, my yoke is heavy and you're going to have to deal with it. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is said in the context of Jesus dealing with religious people of the day. They established a system of 613 laws you had to follow, and in order to not break those 613 laws, they created what was called the hedge around those 613 laws, which were um, basically extra laws, so that way you, if you didn't break those extra laws, you wouldn't break those primary laws. 
And I think the number came out close to 1,000 or 10,000 of those. Okay, that is a heavy burden that nobody can bear. But Christ offers something different. He repurposes our lives with this yoke. The reality of the human soul is that we were created to rest, but we were not created to be passive. We were not created to be machines of efficiency, but we were created to partner with our creator. Dane Ortland uh, put this very well. Christ's yoke is kind and his burden is light. That is, his yoke is a non-yoke and his burden is a non-burden. What helium does to a balloon, fill it up, makes it float, is what Christ's yoke does to his followers. We are buoyed along, we float along in life by his endless gentleness and his supreme accessibility. He doesn't simply meet us in our place of need, he lives in our place of need. And he never tires of sweeping us into his tender embrace. When we partner with Christ, this work differs from the labor that we talked about earlier. When we partner with him, we are not laboring to earn significance or favor with God, but we work from a place of favor with God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a very famous pastor in uh, London in the uh, 19th century, I believe. And he had this idea uh, to help us distinguish between what it looks like to uh, work in order to earn salvation and what it looks like to, uh, to earn rest and what it looks like to work from rest. He says, the heir of heaven serves his Lord simply out of gratitude. He has no salvation to gain and no heaven to lose. Now, out of love to the God who chose him and who gave so great a price for his redemption, he desires to lay himself out entirely to his Lord's service. The child of God works not for life, he works from life. We do not work for rest, we work from the rest that God gives us. The child of God does not work to be saved, the child of God works because he is saved. All right, this is significant. When we begin to trust the goodwill of God, that he values us based off of who he created us to be and not what we produce. Our idea of how we work in the world changes. Our rest doesn't come from a sense of accomplishment. Our rest comes from the sense that our creator values us. And the more we understand that, the more our work becomes stems from a sense of rest, not trying to earn rest. We don't burn out easy because we're not trying to get something. We already have it. When something goes wrong in our work, we don't have a loss of our well-being because our well-being, our rest, isn't based off of what we do, but on who Christ, on how Christ values us. In contrast to this, Spurgeon shows us what it looks like to labor uh, from the opposite way of thinking, working hard to obtain rest. Oh, you who are seeking salvation, oh, you who are seeking rest for your soul by the works of the law, what 
a miserable life yours must be. You have that if you diligently persevere in obedience, you may perhaps obtain eternal life, though, alas, none of you dare pretend you have obtained it. You toil, and you work hard, and you strive, but you never get what you toil after, and you never will. For by works of the law, there shall be no living flesh justified. There shall be no living flesh that receives the rest it desires. We all work from something and for something. If we work for rest, we will never obtain it. If we understand that Christ gives us rest and then calls us to partner with him in his work in the world, we have a stronger sense of well-being that no matter what happens, if good things happen, Christ is pleased with me. If something bad happens, Christ is well pleased with me. We experience soul rest by learning from Christ. The third invitation takes us right to the heart of God and exposes these other two traits that we talked about earlier. Christ said, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Christ doesn't just want us to memorize facts about him. Christ wants us to know his very heart, the core of who he is, and so doing, in so doing, uh, knowing the very heart of God. That Christ is gentle means that he has a strength to bear any weight that comes his way, and yet he has the, con uh, the discipline, the self-discipline, to control that strength. If you've ever held an infant before, uh, you understand this image. You have to have a certain amount of strength to hold that kid up, because otherwise you're going to drop the kid, and that would be bad. All right. But you can't have so much strength that you can't control it and accidentally hurt the child. There's a strength that you have to hold and a control to use that strength gently. That Christ is gentle means that he's not harsh. He's able to bear all the weight of reality. He has all the strength that he needs, and yet he has the self-discipline to control that strength. He is the most understanding person in the world, and the posture that is most natural to him, as Dana Orland put it, is not a pointed finger of judgment or condemnation, but open arms that welcome us back home. That Christ is lowly means that he is the most accessible being in the universe. You don't go through layers of security guards uh, to get to Christ. There are not bouncers waiting at the gate of heaven to kick you out. Um, there was a religion that was starting a little bit after Christianity and they believed you had to have the right password to get through, I forget what it was, seven layers of security before you could get to God. All right. And if you didn't have those seven passwords or whatever they were, seven secret phrases or words, you were stuck in whatever level you got to. All right. 
God is not like that. That Christ is successful means that you can approach him just as you are. And when you approach him just as you are, his gentle heart welcomes you in and begins his good work to grant you rest and to change your life. Quoting Ortland one more time, all Christian toil flows from a fellowship with the living Christ whose transcending, defining reality is this, gentle and lowly. He astounds and sustains us with his endless kindness. Only as we walk ever deeper into his tender kindness can we live the Christian life as he calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and one day leave having startled the world with a glimpse of the divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we deserve. Orland is saying, as we live into this rest, of learning who Christ is, we begin to trust him. We begin to view life differently. We begin to work not as machines of productivity, but we begin to live life as sons and daughters who are beloved by God most high. And these invitations from Christ still stand for us today. And if you will, uh, let me paraphrase from what we've learned. Christ says to you and to me, come to me, you who have tried so hard to find significance and meaning in life, and who have been continually crushed by the weight of life. And I will give you rest. Partner with me, not in order that your soul might be refreshed, but because I will refresh your soul for what I have planned for you. You will know this is true by learning from my gentle and accessible heart. I am the most understanding and the most approachable person in the universe. Come and find rest for your soul. This is the invitation that stands for you and for me today. We don't have to strive in order to have meaning. We don't have to work hard in order to uh, get the approval of God. God says, you are loved, not because you are a machine of productivity, but because you are a beloved child of God. And by the way, one of the facts that I admitted from the beginning, that conference uh, came at the end of February of 2020. A month later, the world shut down, and people had to reframe what it was their lives were focused on. For many, life came to a crashing halt because their lives were centered around um, their career, what they could do, who they were becoming. People uh, found their value and found their rest in knowing uh, people think of me in this kind of way and in this uh, capacity. The situations we experience in life are opportunities 
for us to reframe and refocus and to hear much more clearly this invitation from Christ. I encourage you, if you already have accepted Christ, hear this invitation. Uh, remember that you are not beloved because you are productive. You are beloved because God created you and he delights to give you rest. If you have not heard this call in your life before, I encourage you to hear it now. Christ is saying, come lay these burdens down and I will give you our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed these things to us. We thank you that we do not have to labor for rest, but that, what, that we get to live from the place of your rest. Thank you for your gentle and lowly heart towards us. I pray that we would accept the invitation of rest for our souls. I pray that we would come to Christ, that we would be renewed in our purpose, and we would be compelled to develop our understanding of who you are. And I pray that as we do, we would sense your goodwill towards us. Pray that we would sense your rest that you desire to give us, and we would find you altogether wonderful, altogether lovely. And I pray that in all these things, Christ would be glorified. We love you and we trust you, and it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.